This morning we're beginning the book of 1 Samuel. So today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There was a certain man from Ramuthaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Good morning. Good to see you all. I'm, uh, as most of you know, I think I had knee surgery two and a half weeks ago. I had uh, severed my ACL and torn my meniscus five months ago. I think I also tore my pride a certain amount, <laughs> trying to keep up with a bunch of 20-year-olds and uh, playing basketball. It didn't do so well. I walked on it for five months, but finally decided it wasn't getting better and had surgery. So, uh, but things are getting better. But that's why I'm sitting on a stool this morning, and uh, I don't know how I can do. I like to move around, so this will be a little hard for me. Well, as we're gathering on this day that is the memorial of 9-11, we think about that day that was a shock to us because we tend to be pretty secure in this country and we feel safe and that day shocked us into realizing we have enemies and we are vulnerable. They can reach us. It was a new feeling of insecurity for many of us in America. The perspective of this writer seems to fit our culture today. The world seems to be going to the dogs. Our country is vulnerable to attack from our enemies. Morality is declining rapidly. There is little fear of God in our land. There are no good leaders, it seems. And the religious leaders, those who are supposed to be the paragons of morality, 
virtue and truth are often the worst. Many of them are tainted by sexual scandal and by greed for money and power. People in our nation have forgotten God. And they don't believe in absolutes anymore. So they do whatever they themselves think is right. Why doesn't God do something? Well, is that someone writing about America in 2011? Sure could be, couldn't it? It's actually a summary of the time period of the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Life was a mess in the time of Judges, but it parallels our own time and many of the struggles that we face today. God had brought the people into the land, remember, through Moses, through the Exodus, and then into the land through Joshua. They conquered the land. But then there was a 400-year period during the period of Judges where they forgot God. And the book of Judges sets the context for what we're studying today, the book of Samuel. And the book of Judges ends with these words, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Notice what that statement implies, that there are no absolutes, everything's relative, Nobody's in charge. And people do whatever they think is best. You know, we kind of think the relativism of our day is new. <laughs> it's not. It was in the period of Judges as well. So as we dig into this book, this book of First Samuel, let's just remind ourselves of the historical context. I've got something on the screen I want to show you about that. The time period, 2000 B.C., Abraham was called by God. And that's recounted in the book of Genesis. Then 1800 B.C. or so, these are general dates, Joseph takes Israel to Egypt because of the famine to protect them and care for them. But quickly they became slaves. And Israel, the people of Israel, became a nation of slaves, enslaved to Egyptians. 1400 B.C. or so, Moses came. God raised Moses up to lead them out of Egypt to the Promised Land. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. Moses does not enter the land, but Joshua does. And Joshua takes the land. So, that whole period is described in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua of taking the land. And the period of Judges Begins. So the period of Judges is from 1400 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And as 1 Samuel begins, the people are corrupt, the nation is corrupt, and it's the beginning of God beginning to turn things around in a very corrupt society where things are really a mess. Like the summary said, why doesn't God do something? Well, the book of 1 Samuel is about God doing something. God's stepping in to a corrupt society to begin to change things and make things different. How does God do that? When God wants to step in and change a whole culture, how does he do it? Well, the book of 1 Samuel shows us. And the book of 1 Samuel is really about four people. 
primarily. There's other characters that come in, but it's primarily the story of four people's lives. Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David. Because when God wants to change the world, he doesn't do it through big organizations. He doesn't do it through getting people together to do dynamic things. He doesn't typically do it through a political process. He does it through ordinary people like you and me. People who are willing to begin following God and give him our lives. This book of 1 Samuel is the book of transition from the period of Judges where everything's a mess to it ending with David as king, the ideal king, which really looks forward to the Messiah, the time of Jesus coming, and it prepares the people for Jesus to come, for the Messiah to come. So when God wants to change the world, he uses ordinary people like you and me. So as we study these lives, the lives of Hannah, of Samuel, of Saul, of David, during this year, as we work our way through the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see how God wants to work in each of our lives. Even with all our struggles and dysfunction, to begin to transform this world for Christ. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Lord, what a marvelous, marvelous message that is. That you want to enter into the lives of us, ordinary people, with all our struggles and difficulties and failures and dysfunction and everything else, and you want to use us to change the world. Lord, that's a miracle. It's a miracle of the gospel. It's the miracle of Christ. It's the miracle of the Spirit. So we work our way through this book of 1 Samuel this year. May you give us a vision for what you want to do in each of our lives, that we might be the people of God in the midst of a struggling and corrupt society. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we begin at the beginning, so turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Samuel. And as God begins to turn things around, what amazes me is that he turns, first of all, to the most unlikely place in the nation of Israel, to one of the most unlikely people in the nation of Israel, to bring about his kingdom on earth. And I think what we'll see in this story today is the power of brokenness. The power of brokenness. As David read, it says, begins by talking about a man named Elkanah who is from Ramathaim in the hill country of Ephraim. Now that doesn't mean a lot to us. Hill country of Ephraim, what's that all about? What does that mean? But For an Israelite who's reading this, who would hear this, after going through the period of Judges and having read through the book of Judges, to say the hill country of Ephraim would be shocking. Because in the book of Judges, I don't know if you've read it for a while, I encourage you to, it sets the context for what we're studying in 1 Samuel. But in the book of Judges, the book of Judges ends with two horrific stories. 
of idolatry, of destruction, of the priesthood, the religious leaders being corrupt and turning their backs on God. Both of these stories begin in the hill country of Ephraim. In the book of Judges, chapter 17 is the first story. It begins this way. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And it goes on to tell a story of great idolatry. Chapter 19, a new story, the last story of the book. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite religious leader staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. That Levite, this religious leader, ends up having a concubine. He ends up giving her to some corrupt men. She ends up dying. He cuts her body into 12 pieces, sends her body parts all over. I mean, it was a horrible time. It's one of the most gruesome stories you would ever hear. And it's certainly, I think, the most gruesome story in the Bible. But it sets the stage for the book of 1 Samuel. The hill country of Ephraim was a mess. I don't know what you would compare it to. Think about the place that you think of when you think of the, maybe the most evil place on earth. That's what an Israelite would think of when he thought of the hill country of Ephraim. And yet that's exactly where God shows up. <laughs> that's where God decides, I'm going to bring, begin to bring redemption to my people, the people of God. I guess it's an encouragement for us to think for a moment. Are you living in a situation that seems such a mess or working in a situation that seems such a mess that God couldn't possibly work there? Your family's too messed up, too dysfunctional. There's too many struggles in your own heart, in your own life. So it feels like your situation, your place is outside of God's touch and his control. Well, let me tell you it's not. If God can bring redemption to the hill country of Ephraim, he can bring redemption to your situation. In fact, that's exactly where God wants to work. God loves to work in the places where it looks impossible for his redemption to come. He's not looking for a perfect situation. He's not looking for us to get our act together and then he'll begin doing something. He's not looking for any of that. In fact, he likes to step in in the darkest places on earth, even in the hill country of Ephraim. So that's where our story begins, where there's this family together. And we learn about this man, Elkanah. It says that he has two wives. Name was of one was Hannah, the other Penina. Hannah had no children, but Penina had as we find out, many, many children. Now, because Hannah's name is given first, scholars are pretty clear that she was Elkanah's first wife. He marries her, but she has no children. Well, he needs to have children. He wants to have children, so he marries another wife. Takes Penina, takes her in, and she has many children. As we see, Elkanah goes up to worship every year 
to Shiloh, which is the place where the ark was, where the tabernacle that had gone through the wilderness had been had settled when it came into the land. So it was the place of worship, where the ark was, where the priests hung out. And once a year, Elkanah would go up. Now the law said you should go up three times a year, but hey, this was a really corrupt society. Elkanah is to be commended to, for the fact he even goes up once a year with his family. That's pretty amazing. He's got a heart to worship God. So he travels the 15 miles or so, which with a family and everything probably took two days of walking slowly with the family. Once a year, travel those 15 miles to go to one of the feasts. We didn't know which one, but it was a big feast to worship. And in a culture that had rejected Yahweh, that had rejected the worship of God, this is a wonderful thing. Alkan is a good man. He's to be commended. We find out in verse 4 and 5 that when he came to the sacrifice, he would give the portions. You know, they would do a sacrifice. They would give part of it to the priests. Part of it would be burned. Part of it would be for the priest's food. And then they would take what was left and have a big feast. Well, Kana gave portions to Penina and each of her children, her daughters and sons, but she gave, he gave a special portion to Hannah because it says he loved her. He loved her. He cared for her. He was concerned about her. He felt sorry for her, so he gave her, uh, we don't know exactly what the translation is. It could be a double portion, special portion, something. But he gave her something special because, as it says twice in the text, verse 5 and 6, because the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Now, in our culture, if a woman can't have children, we would look for all kinds of medical explanations, and that's okay. But in their culture, it was very clear that if someone couldn't bear children, it was from the Lord. And the narrator makes it real clear that's his perspective, that's God's perspective, is that the Lord had closed her womb. Clear sense that this was from God. Well, Penina responds to that, the other wife. As we see in verse 6 and 7, her rival would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, and especially, she did that all the time, but especially when they went up to the feast. Now think about what Penina's doing. She's taking her flock of kids, all the kids there, And when they would go up to worship, it was to bring thanksgiving to God. God, you've blessed us this year. Thank you for all the things you've done. We're giving a big feast. And Penina, can't say her name, would look at Hannah and use it as an opportunity to say, but God has not blessed you. God has cursed you. God's against you, Hannah and would purposely try to provoke her to anger and hurt and rage. Penina took advantage of the opportunity of coming to worship to cause more and more pain to her. Now, I've watched friends that I care about, women who longed to have a child, And we're not able to. 
And when you have that longing in your heart, it creates deep pain. But understand that it was even intensified for Hannah. Because for Hannah, in that culture, that was where a woman got her worth. She couldn't say, well, I can't have a child, but at least I can go get a career and try to throw myself into that, or maybe I can adopt a child or find some other place where I can get a sense of worth. No, that was a woman's worth. It was in the children that you had. So to be called cursed of God and not have another way to deal with it was incredibly painful. So it says that she wept and would not eat. At this huge feast where they're there to celebrate the goodness of God, she couldn't eat a thing because the pain was so great in her soul. And what we see is that, and and this is something for us to wrestle with, you and I, it's not easy to say, but I think it's true from the text that God had brought her to a place of brokenness. God had closed her womb. God had brought her to a place of brokenness. Think about your own life. How has God broken you? How has he brought you to a place of pain, of neediness, of barrenness, feeling trapped, rejected by others around you, maybe in your own family like Hannah was? You're closed off from what your heart most longs for and you're suffering in pain because of it. Paul experienced that. Sometimes we don't really see how great his pain was, but in 2 Corinthians where he talks about his thorn in the flesh, we've all heard the passage, but think about what he's saying here where he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Literally, the word there is to beat me, to cause incredible pain to me. It was given by whom? By God. God allowed that to happen somehow in the mystery of God to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. We don't know what it was physical, emotional, spiritual struggle, we don't know. I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Somehow in the mystery of God, of him drawing us to himself, sometimes he closes our womb. Sometimes he leaves us in the hill country of Ephraim. Sometimes he allows us to be broken. How does her husband respond, Elkanah? Notice verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I'm curious as to how the women would take this. (laughs) Most of us men would go, whoa, he's a pretty good guy. (laughs) 
one of the things we miss in the translation here is that where it's translated in my translation, why are you, why are you downhearted or why is your heart sad? Literally, it's why is your heart evil? When Elkanah says that, it's really an accusation. Why are you in such a bad place, Hannah? Get over it. And he says, am I not better to you than ten sons? Think about that for a minute, how ironic that is. Here is Elkanah, who because he could not live without children, Hannah was not enough for him. He married Panina so he could have children. Now, there's a double standard here. He says, come on, you should be satisfied with just me. (laughs) Aren't I enough for you? That had to hurt. J.P. Fokelman, commentator, says this. In his heart, Elkanah wants to be told by her that he is her darling little boy. (laughs) Actually, it is he himself who is asking for affirmation while he appears to be affirming her. Elkanah is talking and addresses his wife Hannah in order to get a pat on the back. He has failed to summon up what very few people are capable of summoning up, and that is being able to keep on their feet in the face of unremitting grief. Like most of us, we don't deal well when someone's in such pain and we don't know what to do about it. So we say things that are ultimately not helpful. And if you really think about what Alcana is saying here, he's trying, he cares about Hannah, he loves her. The text says that. Just not real well. Essentially what he's saying, like a typical male, I think, you've got me, so you shouldn't feel the way you do. Your feelings are wrong. Because deep down, I can't handle your pain. That's really what he's communicating. Because it stirred up for him a sense of inadequacy as a man. She's hurting. I can't fix it. I don't know what to do about that. So I'll just throw something out there and hope it makes her feel better. Well, you've got me. Doesn't that make you feel better? Isn't that enough for you? So think about where Hannah is in this place. Elkanah loves her, but not well. Panina Panina is provoking her, rubbing it in, that God's put her in this position. She's in deep pain. It says she weeps. She would not eat. It's in a very difficult place. How does she respond? Well, I love the next few verses because how does she respond? She responds in prayer. She turns to the Lord in prayer. Though, as she says, she is bitter of soul, she turns to the Lord in prayer. And she says her most remarkable prayer. She made a vow, it says, verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Though she's in pain, 
She does not choose to go find an anesthetic to feel better. She doesn't choose to run away. She doesn't choose to try to distract herself. She goes to the Lord and pours out her heart before the Lord. And I don't think this was a one-time deal. I think this was long-term, but this particular incident, she's at the temple, so she's pouring out her heart to God. But notice how remarkable her prayer is. I'm completely humbled by her prayer. Because her prayer is one that says, Lord, here's how I feel. If you should choose to give me a son, to gift me with a son, I will give him back to you. Think about that for a minute. The very thing her heart longs for, she asks for, but she says, and if you do, give him to me, I'll give him back to you. I'm really hurting. But what you see here is she's putting God's purposes above her own. God's kingdom above her own. She's learning something, that God's presence is more important and more valuable to her than God's gifts, those kinds of presents. Being with God is more valuable than his gifts to her. And she's willing to give the gifts back to God. To say that she would never cut his hair meant that he would be a Nazarite all his life, that he would be committed to God and committed to serve God all his life and would not be raised at home. This is an amazing, amazing prayer. Well, in the next few verses, Eli is there, the priest, and she's praying, but she's not speaking out loud. She's just speaking to herself before God, pouring out her heart. She's clearly worked up. Eli, the priest, is looking at her and says, Man, I've got to keep my temple in order, and this woman looks drunk. And he rebukes her, Get out of here, drunk woman. Come on, you're messing up the temple. She's misunderstood by her family. And now she's misunderstood by the religious leader of the day, the priest. But I love the way she responds to him after he, he rebukes her. Verse 14, Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from, from you. But listen to her vulnerable response. Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maiden made servant a worthless woman, for I've spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. She opens up her heart and says, I'm a hurting woman. I'm not drunk. I'm just crying out to the Lord in my need. It's grief that you see, not drunkenness. Amazing. Again, she could have run away or defended herself, but she just says, this is the reality. I'm vulnerable. This is who I am. And to his credit, Eli blesses her. Says, well, okay, okay, well, I hope God gives you what you want. <laughs> In verse 19 and 20, guess what? She prayed that God would remember her. And in verse 19 and 20, God remembers then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in the due time that after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him 
of the Lord. The key word in those two verses is that the Lord remembered her. Now, this does not mean that God was off doing a project in his, in his wood shop and he goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about Hannah. Let's see, uh, where is she? No. When the scripture says the Lord remembered, it means the Lord begins to move in a way where we feel remembered because he's stepping in in a powerful way. And God steps into her life, answers her prayer by giving her a child. Yahweh remembers. He has not forgotten her. You see, when you have deep pain, deep brokenness, whatever you're going through, God has not forgotten you. And at the right time, he will remember. He will step in with power. He may not answer your prayers you've asked it. There's no guarantee he'll give you a child if you're barren. But he will step in and do something to bring his very life and blessing to you when you wait upon the Lord. Beyond all you could ask or think when you turn to him in your struggle. What do we learn from this? Let me just summarize quickly some thoughts. There's a lot we could say, but we can learn, first of all, that God works in the most difficult of places and in the most broken of people to bring about his purposes. He's a God of redeeming grace. And in fact, the name Hannah means God is gracious. Her name reflects her story. God has been gracious to her as God is gracious to us. She's a woman of grace. It's a story of grace. Secondly, it's not the powerful, the prideful, the influential, the together people that God uses for his kingdom. The Eli's of the world. (laughs) No, he uses broken, needy, praying people. They're the very ones that God wants to use to change the world. So what does God want from us? To turn to him in our pain. To give him our hearts and our lives. And when he gifts us in answers to our prayer, to give those gifts back to him. To not hang on to the gifts, but use it as an opportunity to draw near to him in a deeper way than we ever have. When we do so, the power of God is released in our lives. And of course, Jesus is the greatest example. Who emptied himself, became obedient to the point of death, gave up everything, gave it all back to the Father. And God used that to bring life to a sinful, corrupt, broken world. And God wants to use each of us in the same way as we come to him with our brokenness in our struggle in prayer, in dependence, and give his gifts back to him, we become instruments of his to bring life to a broken, corrupt world. Let's pray. Thank you for Hannah, Lord, because we can relate to her in our own pain, our own brokenness, our own dysfunctional families and situations in which we are. Thank you that that is the very place you want to bring life. I pray for each person here that they might begin to sense your hand moving to bring life into their situations. 
And may they turn to you and give it all to you in prayer. May we remember Hannah and find grace in our time of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.